Hello there, and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. I know I've been teasing this for a while, but today's episode finally marks the season two finale. It's been uh, quite a season with uh, a lot of guests and a lot more interviews than I expected, but it's been fun. This final interview is with Hannah Peel, and while she's had quite a successful solo recording artist career over the last ten years or so, in the last few years she's kind of accomplished one of her lifelong dreams in moving into composing for film and TV and other media as well. And so today we spend quite a bit of time talking about her career broadly and wearing those two hats. But we also get into her new show, which is The Midwitch Cuckoos, based on the sci-fi book of the same name, though you might be more familiar with its other film adaptations, which all went under the name The Village of the Damned. And it's a really cool score that mixes dark, oppressive electronics, as well as gentler moments, with a lot of use of voice. And you're probably sick of hearing me and reading from me talking about use of voice in film music, but I love it. And this is another great example. You can find more out about Hana on her social media or her website. And you can check out the score from Invada or the show from Sky in the UK. Although, unfortunately, I'm not sure where to watch it if you're based in the US or elsewhere around the world. I'm sure you can find a way. Before I launch season three in probably a few months, I'll probably have one off episodes here and there. So, this won't be the last you hear from me for a while. But until then, sit back and I hope you enjoy. Hana, I'm so glad you joined me today. How have you been? Oh, very well, thank you. And quite busy, but I'm very happy. Yeah, have you gotten a little lull finishing up the Midwich Cuckoos, or are you on to the next project already? Yeah, I'm definitely on to the next project. But I my um, uh, I finished Midwich Cuckoos a couple of months ago. It's mostly been since that happened, mostly been prepping for the actual soundtrack album which is now out. But yeah, the total, I got the blues when it had finished. That's without a doubt. I think when you finish something that lasts over a year and, and oh, consumes wow. your whole life, then yeah, you do feel a little bit lost after it's gone. Does that kind of get balanced by, I don't know, I assume like the sense of joy that of it being finished or is it have a bittersweet feeling? Do you, I think it's more of a bittersweet feeling. Yeah, that you have such a camaraderie with everybody that's involved and you're speaking to them every day and it's nice to get your life back and carry on. But it's um, it's the same whenever like I've been on tour because I release records as well and you spend so much time with a group of people and then you come back to your own life and you're like, hey, what is this? It's so different. So there is that element of, I miss this, but actually... I've luxuriated in achieving such a massive thing because for me, this is the biggest show I've ever done. And I wrote, produced and performed the whole score. So it was, I put everything into it. And yeah, I mean, I I was always going to feel something at the end of it. And luckily, you know, I look back now and go, yeah, it was worth it. (laughs) With it being that big of a project, were you daunted or at the beginning especially, or did you you ever reach a... A point where you were like, oh, this is just too much. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We've, I mean, this is the type of job that transcends work. 
it becomes part of you. It, it ticks all the boxes for what I truly love, which is synth music, sci-fi, horror, but sunlit, logical horror, you know, that it's part of your everyday life. And there's also a folk element to it. I mean, even the, the end credit song is a cover of a Benjamin Britten cuckoo oh. song. So that it's got all these aspects to it that's very British, but also very contemporary. And yeah, despite it being such a huge thing and, and at times very overwhelming. I mean, I had an amazing music editor and assistant on it with me. But yeah, I, I loved every part of it. And I think that's a really special thing. And not once did I feel compromised in the musical choices or even the artistic integrity. Like it, the team was just incredible you know sometimes you can work on something and there might be one member of of a huge team that maybe disagrees with everything you do or 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 challenges you or pushes you too far but this was just fully supportive and that's really special and quite rare I think in in such a big show like a sky show yeah I mean that's that's great yeah you 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 hear it so often where you know that's kind of part of the process that you expect especially on a bigger show or a bigger movie, there's just so much money and so many people involved that there's going to be a bunch of comments coming down and you know, it mm. might push back against what you're hoping. But, I mean, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, what were some of the, especially some of the earlier conversations with the production team as far as the direction of the music and everything? Yeah, I mean, right, okay, even from the word go, it was really exciting. So um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of John Wyndham anyway and his novels, and I'd read Day of the Triffids. Um, I knew of Midwich Cuckoos because I'd seen Village of the Damned. And entering into that world and then reading the script from the first kind of moment, so I, I was able to read episodes one and two before actually sending off demos of what mm. I think that sound world could be and had various different interviews I think maybe three interviews as well around that time which is quite a lot but also because I'd never scored more than a four-part series they also wanted to make sure you know that I was able to cope with the challenges of working to such a high degree as well but yeah I mean it was just exciting from the word go and hearing the feedback from those initial tracks I think out of the kind of sent five demos and out of out of those five, only one never made it into the show because mm. it was it was possibly too nice. <laughs> it was very pastoral and it felt actually quite Benjamin Britten-esque, but was it didn't match what we needed. And so, yeah, from that moment, it was just about developing ideas and talking about the concepts with the, the creator and writer, David Farr, developing things that... You know, the show in in itself is is a beautiful thing. It's about motherhood and love and nurture and caring coupled with the darkness and fear and violence. And how do you find that balance, especially in the music? You know, what do you present? And so, yeah, a lot of it was this kind of duality that was on on constantly back and forth of like, we need it darker. OK, this needs to be lighter. And that equilibrium was really important to find. So we had a lot of kind of back and forth even before the the edit started so that when actually the edit started, there was possibly 30 to 40 tracks of music each with layers of maybe, I don't know, 10 to 20 stems within it. So the editors had a lot to go on. And then my job kind of after that was piecing it all together like a giant puzzle. Well, it's it's interesting you mention the balance because 
that's one of the things that I picked up in watching the show. Maybe the most obvious part of the the score is the music that's acting like an invasion itself, like these oppressive drones coming in. But you also get a lot of moments in the show where all the sound kind of fades away and you just have this gentle electronic soundscape in the idealized version of like suburbia and village life and everything <laughs> that yeah. comes in here and there and then obviously gets constantly shattered. So it's it's a really interesting balance of things that I think makes its way onto the the soundtrack album as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it is like an invasion. I like there's certain themes that you know keep reoccurring and keep coming back and they were there to represent either the hive mind of the children or or the the essence of the town itself and the fact that it's it's funny, isn't it? Like that they started to disappear by the time you get to the end of the series, but like sometimes I remember like watching uh, it back at the beginning, the end of episodes, and you didn't hear that kind of cuckoo kind of voice until like the moment where they, they do the second blackout together. And it felt like a homecoming. It felt like, OK, we're back into this comfort zone, which is obviously really horrific as well what they're doing. But it also felt like it was representing their comfort of being together and and unity together. Can you go into a little bit on that motif in particular? You hear it throughout that kind of mimicking of the cuckoo. And in one sense, it's really, it makes total sense because obviously it's in the name of the show, the name of the book, but it's also just a really interesting sound. So could you just tell me like how that came to mind and how you created it? Yeah, for sure. I think like melodically, yeah, it, it represents the bird quite well and, and the um, the call of the cuckoo itself. Also that kind of fifth is, I found, quite paganistic mm. and very kind of ancient in a sense. I mean, the, the first ever written score starts with a fifth. It's a real thing that we hone into. Sound-wise, production-wise, I made an instrument out of my voice, uh, just recording every single note and kind of put that into the keyboard into the midi keyboard so that you end up with this kind of slightly surreal voice that doesn't sound quite natural but it, it is and once I started playing with that melodically it seemed to just fit uh, perfectly you know it wasn't a thing that we were like searching for for a very long time it just kind of was like oh there it is that's the sound of the children it's got a naivety to it almost a nursery rhyme basic love to it so that's where it kind of all kicked off one from, from that theme point anyway. I hear more and more, and maybe it's just like the handful of releases that I've listened to lately, of uses of voice. And mm. I always find them very fascinating because it takes something that's familiar to us and often, at least in more, in music that's pushing kind of more towards the experimental end, it's done in ways that we might not expect. And so it, yeah. it kind of twists us into taking something we know and and turning it into something else. And I think that does it as well because, well, I mean, it's it's just like the children where obviously all of us are familiar with children. We're just not familiar with ones that are you know, kind of <laughs> supernatural as well. Yeah, yeah, you're totally spot on. It's, it's definitely, I've noticed it in a lot more scores recently. And I think there's two reasons for that. I think for this particular score, it needed a human voice. It needed that kind of, nurture human basic need of of reproduction 
But yeah, I think there's also, you know, we, we've gone through lockdown where it was harder to get string sessions together, big breath sessions, and people were experimenting with using their voices a lot more because you're doing things from home and it's a lot quicker, which I think is really cool. I've always used my voice in, in lots of things. So, but yeah, I've noticed it a lot recently and I think it is to do with the pandemic around the world, actually. Mm. And I guess staying out of that because you, you released what, albums in 2020 and 2021 as well and and this goes back to the very first thing we said where it seems like you're just always busy working on stuff but did the you know the lockdown and basically the COVID environment for the last two two and a half years like what kind of effects did that have just broadly on trying to work and record yeah I guess like all the remote sessions recording sessions the first one that I experienced when it when we went into lockdown, I was head deep in recording a score for a Channel Five over here called The Deceived. Mm-hmm. It went out on Channel Five and Virgin. That was all recorded using a string quartet and quite intensely using this same string quartet. And you know the sessions would be very very long sessions. A lot of it was to do with extended techniques and and yeah, the last episode I never got to record with them, which because we'd hit lockdown and on the day that actually we're supposed to do the recording session so yeah I had to switch it all up and, and go for the remote recording and you know some of it was done in Scotland some in London and all the mixing was done via audio movers into my studio via the mixers studio so it was a really surreal experience and not one that I particularly enjoyed however since then I've done a, quite a few sessions that have actually allowed me to keep on working because I'm based in Northern Ireland um, and I travel to London a lot but sometimes actually if you've got a really good team with you I'm able to kind of do the session but from my home so I'm able to still record and not spend two days either side traveling Mm. and you know listen to everything being recorded give notes give feedback as the session is going on in London and and I think that has opened a, a huge door to the possibilities of experimentation and different players around the world that you might not have access to or even a budget to to travel to or to pay them to come to you. I've loved the kind of possibilities that have opened up, even though, you know, it is difficult for musicians to get work as well. I think we often hear just the, the negative side, and obviously there is a lot of that, but it's good to know that there's a positive too, that it opens yeah. up more flexibility. And I mean, like you mentioned before on the use of voice, it has kind of push more experimentation and trying to find creative solutions to making sounds and using sounds as well totally and I think there's I think a lot of people are bored of hearing big string sections and and things people want I mean I've always been interested and loved kind of like soundscape worlds you know like the music of Clint Mansell like Mm. stuff like that where you delve into kind of the nuances of, of the electronics and field recordings that have been manipulated and the, the balance between electronic production and, and acoustic instrumentation, I think, is really exciting. So, yeah, you're right. I think it's pushed a lot of composers into doing other things differently and layering and and, and also opened a door to a lot of other artists that would be recording artists into making scores which is is always fantastic because you're going to get something completely different. Yeah, well, and I really love that last point where I enjoy all sorts of more traditional orchestral scores, but I grew up listening to, I don't know, 
drone and things like that. So I've always been predisposed to like weirder music. And <laughs> so it's it always excites me hearing artists and musicians that you wouldn't normally hear making music for films or for TV. I think getting an increasingly open door to those types of projects. I actually talked with Lucrezia Dalt like a couple of weeks ago. I was about to say her as well because I love what she's done with the baby. I think yes, brilliant and I love her music. So I'm glad you've spoken to her. Yeah, I mean, and that was like exactly it where that was another Sky production also with HBO and it's like, this is a, a big production and big audience that's going to get just weird music. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. I love that. I think... It's not going to be for everyone, but like I love more and more people getting exposed to, and it doesn't have to be avant-garde music, but just like things that'll get them out of their comfort zone a little bit. Definitely, and we're in a period where it's mass making of TV shows. Like we are consuming it at such a rate that there isn't enough kind of film composers in the traditional sense to go around to satisfy all the projects and sounds that are needed. So I think, yeah, I think it's amazing. And obviously, like, there's a certain level, you know, there's, I, I guess, like, you've got to be prepared mentally for producing that amount of work and have the right mm. team to support you if you've come in from the recording artist world, which is very different into the media world. You need a lot more support or you need, like, people there that are going to understand and a team, that a creative team that are going to understand that you're going to approach things in a different way, possibly. Can you tell me a little bit about how the the experience and the process has differed between creating your solo music, let's say, versus working in the media world of film, TV, etc.? Yeah, there's, I mean, it's like using your left and right brain. <laughs> besides, <laughs> um, it's like making records is such a a me process. I mean, one of the things I love doing with making records is collaborating with people. The last few records that I've done have been collaborations and in lots of different forms and senses. But, you know, you're on your own time scale, your own deadlines. It's about you pushing to finish something and to get it over the finish line. Whereas, you know, in media, it's a lot more about working as a, a team player and you're working to a huge production deadline so that, you know, you can't miss that. So it's a different type of pressure. I mean, it's I would never be able to do media composing full time. I couldn't work in that way. But to have that balance and the and now the luxury, I mean, I've worked hard to get to this point, but the luxury of, of being a recording artist and a media composer is is a nice balance for me and my particular brain. You know, I can handle the two kind of separate things. And, and I like that. It keeps me inspired and motivated mm -hmm. and often techniques and things that I'm doing in one thing feed into the other. And I think that's a really beautiful way of staying on top of your work and developing and, and delivering something that is different. Interesting. And I guess, too, on the media side of it, because you're you're doing a collaboration that isn't led by you, you know, is it also kind of having that external push make you focus yeah. on things and styles and genres, let's say, that you might not do if it was just your solo work? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a fine line in that I wouldn't accept a job if it wasn't in my kind of comfort zone. 
But for example, I did a documentary for the BBC over here, which was about Lee Miller, the wonderful model photographer, World War II photographer. Mm. And she lived her life through different stages of, of music genres, you know, from jazz right through to until she died. So there was an element that the music also had to cover that lifespan as well. And when I was kind of approached to do the score, I never really took it into I never factored in that I'd be doing jazz. I'm not a jazzer <laughs> at all. Like I was like, how does an electronic musician go and do jazz? And those little challenges are really good once you get over that hurdle of like, okay, well, I'll just, I'll write the melody. I know how to do that. I'll write bass lines. I'll get the tempo. I'll get this. And then I'll get in the best musicians I know to work around that and we'll work on it together. And, and that works. So I'm more kind of, reluctant to take on things where I don't know what I might do but yeah when it's when you're faced with a, a little challenge like that it does become very exciting like it informs you of, of who you are especially as a composer and what you can handle <laughs> that's awesome going back to the Midwich Cuckoos like was there ever a thought at the very beginning that there might be parts of the sound palette or like the styles used that you'd have to go outside of what you're used to what you're comfortable in no, I feel really lucky with this score. I, I, like, I feel like it ticked every single box. And I, I mean, you're always going to get pushed in some sense. And David, one of the things he said to me, I, I delivered a couple of sounds. So basically for the children, we had two sets of, of palettes of sound. We had the kind of serene sound and the sinister and there were two folders that I made and David had said to me, I think we need these different folders. Not only did the sounds have to integrate and cross-contaminate with each other, but they had to stand alone as being the kind of hopeful beautifulness and the also the sinister side. There was definitely a push. And I remember sending him initial folders and him going, we need it darker. We need it like full on strange and I remember just thinking, wow, nobody in TV has ever asked me to do this. Like it's normally like a certain level when it gets too dark, people kind of run away from it. And he was wanting it more and more. And I, I mean, I thought that was just brilliant, but it, it did make me go, okay. And I took stock and then had to kind of go back into like, I mean, behind me, I've got all my synths and a lot of the sounds that are generated for the hive and when there's like a happening is from um, a Lyra 8 synthesizer. You know, it's got eight oscillators. Even just a tiny flick of something will change it and create these, mm -hmm. you know, crazy sound worlds. So actually, I just went back to that and created the most kind of obscure things that I possibly could. And he was like, yep, that's it. We've got it. We've got the sounds. So yeah, even in like something where you feel comfortable, I think there's definitely challenges to be met. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I don't have any kind of like gruesome stories. I think with this show, I was just, I just enjoyed it. <laughs> it was so good. That's awesome. And, you know, sometimes we like to hear the the gruesome or the horror stories and the war stories, but like, really, yeah. it's it's so much nicer when it's when oh, things actually have turned out well. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know how it would have turned out had it been the opposite. <laughs> I mean, working on something for so long and then maybe not enjoying it. or I, I can't imagine what that would feel like for a composer because it must be torturous. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I have a hard time imagining what it's like just even working on a project that you loved for a year because that's such, a, such an enormous investment. Yeah. It does feel like that. And, you know, the flip side of that is 
that you've always got to balance your mental health as well and it's not just about the music it's about managing and and actually I was really lucky with my music editor called Ed (laughs) but he was like quite I've never worked with an editor before and didn't quite know what I was going to get like the level of of help and actually he was more just like holistic holistic editing it was great you know (laughs) just the kind of like sometimes when you know you've got 10 cues to do in a week or whatever or more he's he's the one that texts us going you can do it this is great you got it sorted and and sometimes you just need that and if you've got a good team around you I think it makes it a lot easier oh see I I love that and I think a lot of people like me on the outside trying to look in don't think about that portion of it like the mental aspect or the the morale aspect and that these are actually people making this music and making these shows and these films and like they need like having teams and having support and everyone working well together makes such an enormous difference massive yeah it's hugely important and i think the more high pressured shows and things that i'm starting to get involved with the the more I, i realize that that is integral to doing a show and enjoying it and i think I do think that if there was something, a job that I was doing that I wasn't enjoying or it wasn't quite sitting right with me, I I would probably sit off it. I think that I've got to the stage where I would make that decision of like, no, this is not worth the pain to go through this. I'd rather keep my sanity and and carry on with other things, I think. Although, you know, maybe ask me that in a year or something, I don't know. (laughs) Do you think there was a point in time earlier in your career where if that circumstance came up, you'd make a different decision. I think for a lot of younger composers, especially in media, like it feels so hard to get your foot in the door that once you do, you don't want to rock the boat. Yeah, totally. There's a there's definitely an essence of not being able to say no to stuff and having to manage that. I guess like the difference is, is you're doing shorter projects in some ways so that you're able to kind of just put a deadline on two or three months and get over it and be like right I did that I learned from that I know the signs I know the types of people that I want to work with and you can only learn those things through through experience no one's ever going to teach you that you know without a doubt I wouldn't have been able to turn anything down for money really or or just even getting a leg in luckily I've never had that experience where I've, I've hated something so much that <laughs> I've not worked on it I've been really fortunate but you know like a lot of people and you'll have heard this before that composing for media is not just about the creation it is it is also the psychology behind it and managing not only the psychology of what you're getting given and how to deal with that but also how to interpret all the comments and the Mm. feedback that come from multiple producers exec producers the director and taking from that in a way that doesn't affect you personally as your ego or anything like that it's just literally the job and I've I've learned those skills throughout, you know, my career and to the point now where I'm like, yep, yep, great, 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 done, done, done. It doesn't affect how I feel about a person. It's just the work comes first. It's funny because I've, I've heard and I've read stories like that where, especially when somebody was a younger composer, you know, they get annoyed with notes because they're certain that they know better than everyone else involved. And they're like, all right, when I make it big, like... I'm going to tell them to shove it because, you know, what do they know? And then they go and see, you know, Danny Elfman or, you know, some other big name composer doing a live recording. And 
an exec or the director will give them notes and the composer's like, yep, 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 these are great. I'll make those changes. And mm. I think like that realization for some people is surprising. Like they don't think it's going to carry on like that the whole way and that they have to realize, no, this is a collaboration. Yeah. I have to put myself aside. Yeah, totally. And also I've like, I've noticed, you know, getting into my late thirties now that the difference between in my 20s and the attitudes that I had and also people I worked with had is you think you're invincible and you can do everything and you have a certain youthful confidence that is fantastic but is also like can be very destructive it's funny how as you as you age you do mellow slightly people that are able to kind of handle all those emotions and deal with all that from a young age is is really admirable yeah yeah well, and speaking about that broadly, what is it that made you interested and got you into composing for media in the first place? Was that something that you always had an interest in or did you kind of just fall into it a little bit more? No, I've always wanted to. Yeah, I mean, even from very early days of listening to records, we had very limited actually music in, in our house at home, but we had quite yeah. a lot of soundtracks really? and classical records, but always things like Hulse's The Planets and, and Peter and the Wolf, things that were very cinematic and, and yeah dramatic, I guess. And so I've always had that kind of inclination to listen to that type of music. Like even when I was studying for my school exams, instead of putting on a, a, a record of like songs, I would put on instrumental music, which at the time was, I don't know, maybe even Titanic or something. <laughs> but, but just something, uh, you know, that really ha could kind of take you into a different place that no vocals were going to distract you. But it wasn't until I was at university that I, I went to see a band called Cinematic Orchestra. And they were in Manchester performing in, the, in this beautiful hall with, I think it was 1920s film called Man with a Movie Camera really gorgeous experimental dada film and i remember when when they played it live as the soundtrack with the footage i had shivers all over my body i thought it was just like the most exciting thing and i'd always loved that combination of when you write a piece of music and it fits with the visual and you get that kind of oh, that's it it's working or you get that kind of moment of like it's going to make you cry or make you feel something and I think that feeling has always remained with me and kept me going and you know doing the albums and doing everything else has always been a way for me to to maneuver the, my career so that I am doing stuff with multi-arts either that be a dance show or with media or even theatre I've always loved narrative and and journeys and even like just creating a journey within the through line of a, of a record even I think is really really exciting. No, that's that's great. I mean, it's it's also very cool that you can pinpoint that experience as being so formative. And that's something that I've always wanted to have is like that kind of live film music experience. And I, I think it's getting slightly more popular, at least. I hope so. Yeah, I think it was. I think when you like when something works and it makes you feel and you don't even know the music is there. I mean, isn't that just like a work of art? It's like, it's brilliant. I think it's like subliminal messaging. Yeah, I, I, I just think it's it's just so clever and it makes you, yeah, those feelings of when you get that shiver and that moment is special. 
but yeah, I tend to get them when I'm in a live situation. Mm. I think you get it when you you're watching things back on the screen in your in your studio quite a lot, but mostly you'll get it from a live situation. Do you think that's one of like the ultimate rewards you can have as someone that's making music not just for media but broadly to like create and evoke those types of reactions in the listener or the viewer? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 like what you say. It's a reward. It's a hit of dopamine. It it's that feeling that you get that you've done something and you've achieved it, and you you're connecting with people in a different way. It's regardless of yeah, like you say, what whatever type of form your music takes, it is a connection and a conversation, and that's really important for stories and narratives that that we have had since the beginning of our time. It's also something that. When you have that experience, when when a piece of music, for instance, just grabs you and doesn't let you go, that sticks with you for years and years. I mean, I can I can remember certain albums that I listened to 15 years ago, just like vividly everything about that first listen and mm-hmm. my surprises and reactions and everything. And it's like, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is that like gets into our brain about it and like our emotions, uh, but like... I love it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Stranger Things, Kate Bush is like the best example. You know, so many people have so many associated emotions and memories with that track. And then the fact that it's dealing with so much around mental health and then putting on something that you love. And music is one of those things that triggers all the senses that can take you back to a place of happiness, take you to a place of comfort. It can evoke so many things that other art forms can't do and you know even smells you sometimes you can be brought back to a, a completely yeah a smell or a person and and that, that's really magical and it's it's from the center of our brains like the auditory cortex right in the center where everything is stored and you know I think that's it's just yeah it's really exciting that music can do that yeah it is and you know, it leads me a little bit it into this how much of trying to craft an experience goes into your process of turning a score into a like a soundtrack release like you take the midwich cuckoos which is i don't know how much music's in it but it's seven 45 50 minute episodes so like 350 minutes of tv that's brought down into about 40 45 minutes of the soundtrack <laughs> yeah. release and i know like the order of the songs obviously have changed as well from where they appear in the show. So like what's going on from your perspective to like put all that together? Yeah, that's that's such a great question because it can feel really daunting. There was like nearly 200 cues of music in in Midwich. And I guess what I was doing as, because I knew that it would probably end up as a soundtrack. So what I was just basically doing as, as I completed each episode and it was mixed, I would just take and copy my favorite tracks from that episode and put them into a, a folder. And then I'd end up with mm. maybe like, you know, 70 tracks or something, 10 from each episode. And then you start to filter it down. And like you say, the order is really important because it's not necessarily exactly how it appears in the show. For me, it's about creating another, you know, it's a product. It's another way of experiencing something, the tracks are placed in a way that, you know, the second track is the end credits, it's the song, but also I didn't want to open with that, but it has to be high up there. But the opening for me is is the hive mind of the children because you hear that 
like you say, like an invasion. It is consistent. It's something you instantly recognize and you're drawn into that world. And so for me, that had to come at the top. And the more kind of ones, there's like a track called Awakenings. Um, the ones that are more about the pregnancy and the birth felt like they needed to come slightly later in order to kind of, you've got this dark world, but then you've got a beautiful moment, like a lift, almost like an arch. And then it mm. takes you right back down to kind of the end, which, you know, it does end with the final closing track, which is called It's Over, uh, which is the vocals that are very distorted and manipulated and put through delays and tape and pitched. It felt like I, you needed to have this arch in the record as well. It didn't work when it was all the bright light sunlit stuff at the top. It needed to give you a lift in the, the album itself. Interesting. That makes sense. And I think... There's certainly, at least for film scores, a branch of people that want all the music and all chronologically. And obviously it's a little different when you have a project that's 90 or 120 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think there's something very special when it's curated by the artist to create its own experience as well, like you've done. Uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, sometimes with film, you want it from the top and you want it to go through. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, with this... It felt wrong, actually, choosing out of all them tracks and then having to put them in order just didn't feel good. Like it, mm. yeah, it was nice to curate. It almost feels like you're making something special that's yours because the rest of it doesn't feel like mine. Mm, very interesting. It's always in collaboration with everybody else. So this is like my little kind of like, here's what I think. <laughs> <Hi>. <laughs> I've never thought of it like that, but I actually like, I love that view of it. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to know what others do, actually. It's something, that kind of question, it is really interesting because I've never, like, you know, I must have a look at Lucrece's The Baby record and the things and just see where the order of things are, actually, if she's done the same, like, approaching it from a more kind of recording artist type of view. Hmm, little study. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I missed my chance and forgot to ask her about that. But. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, Hannah, I'm... I'm so glad you could join me today and I'm you know I made sure not to keep you too long so you wouldn't miss your uh, swing, swing dancing swing later. dancing I know <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited about it it's gonna be great <laughs> awesome well well have fun and thanks again it was great chatting with you oh it's been a pleasure thank you for having me